Today we discuss major developments in the labor movement as workers grow increasingly assertive of their rights. Members of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees voted almost unanimously to authorize a strike that would shut down Hollywood, Kellogg's factory workers are on strike, and workers at Nabisco recently wrapped up a successful strike action. Will this trend continue? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it, capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolff join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all his work at rdwolf.com. Professor Wolf, it's been a busy time for the labor movement. This IATSE strike, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or strike vote, I should say. But that could be a very large, perhaps even historic strike action. Kellogg's, another very well-known brand, over a thousand of its factory workers in the United States are on strike. The Nabisco strike got, I think, some well-deserved public attention and should have gotten more. What's going on right now? Well, I think you're seeing the long postponed, the long delayed waking up in some sense of that famous sleeping giant, the American labor movement. It's not that it was asleep. That's an exaggeration. It was always bubbling and percolating, but it was a movement that had two serious problems. Number one, the American mainstream media, the overwhelming bulk of radio and television, is itself private enterprise. It is owned and operated by capitalists. In fact, as everybody knows, the five or six biggest media companies in the United States control the vast bulk, the majority of mass media outlets. And because it's controlled by employers, they are not able, willing, or interested in giving publicity to employees in general and employees that are striking or critical of capitalism or of their particular employer in particular. So you've got a setup that keeps knowledge of the labor movement at an incredible minimum. And the second problem has been the 70-year decline of the American labor movement. 
let's be real clear. 70 years ago, the percentage roughly of American workers, public and private, represented by unions was around 30-35%. In other words, a third of the American working class was represented by a union. Today, it is a pale shadow of that. In the private sector, which is the most important part of our capitalist economy, workers, only 6%, little over 6% of workers are represented by a union. It's higher in the public sector there. It's still around 25, 30%, but that's the smaller part of it. And public employees are under attack in large parts of the United States, led by the Republican Party, but often with the weak and ineffective resistance of the Democratic Party to an assault on the labor movement, which has traditionally been a source of support for the Democratic Party. And that has meant that the Democratic Party, watching and often being the silent partner in undermining the labor movement, is finding itself weaker and weaker because of the declining labor movement. Therefore, it pays less attention to the labor movement. And so you get this self-reinforcing decline in knowledge about, in support for, in connections with a labor movement. And therefore, it's been very quiet in the last two, three decades, certainly compared with the previous 40 or 50 year period when we had labor militants and labor activism far greater than what we've had. And so I think what's happening now is that the period of labor's decline, basically since the 1950s, coincided with a use by the employers of that weakness in the labor movement, of that decline, to really go for broke by sticking it to the working people every way they could, by reducing wage increases down to nothing, by undermining benefits, you know, converting defined benefit pensions to defined contribution pensions, to taking away medical care, making the worker pay a higher share of the deductible and a higher share of a whole host of medical procedures, nickel and diming your way, changing the category of worker from regular employee protected by the law to a so-called gig worker, contract worker, whom you can deprive of the benefits and protections that workers in earlier struggles won. When you put all of this together, you see a real hollowing out of that part of the working class that was able to win benefits in large part because of the labor movement. And we call that in America, the elimination or the decline of the middle class. We shouldn't, we shouldn't use language like that because that avoids pointing the finger where it needs to be pointed at the systematic use by the business community of its control of the media, of the electoral process, of the government to wage all-out war against the working class. And I think what you're pointing to, the IATSE, the strike at Nabisco, the strike at Kellogg, and countless lesser 
strikes and work actions that the media simply do not analyze, let alone even report, I think you're seeing the end result that anyone paying attention could have and would have predicted, namely that it's gone too far. You are, as the old saying goes, killing the goose that lays the golden eggs, and the goose is reacting. And the goose is the labor movement that is deciding we've had enough, we are not going to take it anymore. And you're seeing that among unionized workers pushing their unions for action, and you're seeing it among the vast majority of our working class, ununionized workers, who are either looking to join unions, and that's happening a lot, or taking actions on their own outside of the formal labor unions. Yeah, I mean, so so important to make that point, I think, about the built-in anti-labor bias of the corporate news media. You know, picking up on the IATSE strike, I wanted to read this quote from a member of IATSE Local 800, Amelia Brook. She was speaking to Liberation News. We exhaust ourselves for 12, 14, 16, even more hours a day, and it leaves no time for us to focus on other things that matter in our community, within our families. If we've got hobbies or other interests, we're not allowed to pursue them. It's time that we're allowed to be fuller people outside of making entertainment for others. You know, I think that's such an important point because, you know, in addition to pay and benefits, the labor movement and these strikes in particular are also about just basic humane treatment. I mean, the eight-hour workday in the United States was a historic accomplishment of the labor movement, but it's been eroded to such a great degree. And of course, it had never been fully implemented in a completely systematic way. But I mean, workers now, even if their income is, you know, maybe enough to sustain you know, to keep a roof over the head and food on the table, the conditions people are being subjected to, especially in light of the pandemic, are just completely inhumane. Yeah, I think a whole host of issues are raised by what you say. Let me start to get at them with a couple of statistics. The United States government keeps track of something called the quit rate. That's the rate at which workers quit their jobs. These are workers that are not laid off. These are not workers that are told not to come back Monday morning because their business is falling apart or something like that. These are workers who make the decision to quit a job that they've held. And so it's a measure of dissatisfaction with the work. It's not clear what part of the work you're most upset about, but to quit, given our society and given the unemployment all around us, is a dangerous act and requires a worker to be quite upset about how he or she is being treated to do that. We are having the highest quit rates in the history of that statistic in the United States, and that ought to tell you something about the level of dissatisfaction that workers experience on the jobs that they have, where they're earning a living, etc., and they're not happy and they're angry about what's going on. The second way to get at this is to make a comparison between the United States and how it treats its workers and other capitalist countries. And I'm gonna use the example of Germany, which is the number one capitalist country in Europe at this point. There's no contest about that. Germany acknowledges something which is barely discussed in the United States. In Germany, it's called work-life 
balance, work-life balance. There have been strikes by some of the largest unions, IG Metall in Germany, for example, a major industrial union, an employer there in the steel industry and so on. And they're a big exporting uh, manufacturing economy. They've had strikes and one reduced work weeks and all kinds of other benefits, much better than what we have here in the United States. And the demand of the union and of the workers was work-life balance, which meant exactly that we need less time forced to work on the job so that we can have a balance with the rest of our lives. We are parents. We are children. We are friends. We are lovers. We are people who have other activities in our lives, and a decent economy doesn't pretend that we don't. A decent economy doesn't treat us as if we're simply a mechanism to earn profits for what, after all, are a tiny minority of the people. In the United States, for example, 10% of our people own 80% of the shares of stock, so we're producing we the masses are producing profits for a tiny minority, and we don't have a decent life-work balance. The American labor movement hasn't taken that issue up in a big way. And where occasionally it's talked about, it doesn't become a national mobilizing slogan, even though Poll after poll teaches us that a vast majority of the American people do not find the work-life balance they are forced to live with acceptable, tolerable. We are hearing complaints left and right, partly to explain those quits that I talked about, that people are being asked to work, often, by the way, illegally, beyond 40 hours without being paid extra. Many people, particularly young ones, take a job where they know very well they're going to be asked to work longer hours because that has become the quote-unquote new normal. It is really important, I think, to see that our political and cultural life is being affected by the decline of the labor movement and the decline of organized labor. Those are two separate but related things because it is worsening the inequality in our society. It is worsening the quality of life. It has hollowed out the so-called middle class. And we're living in a society which is determined to push that further. And the Democratic Party, which used to be at least verbally committed to working people in a way that the Republicans couldn't pretend to be, well, the Democratic Party has not been able in the last 75 years to stop this process, to stop the decline of the labor movement, to stop the growing inequality, to stop the neglect of our personal lives as we are made to become more and more worker drones in big businesses. And so all the Democratic Party promises to do is to slow down to lessen the harshness of what the Republicans are pushing. And nothing illustrates this more clearly than the current program of Nancy Pelosi and Mr. Schumer and the other leaders of the Democratic Party caving in to the Republicans, not wanting them to provide the kind of public services that have long been normal. 
in Western Europe. I mean, I find it extraordinary. And when I explain this in public speeches here in the United States, the jaws of my audience drop. Their jaws drop. When I explain to them in most Western European countries, the minute you start a job, the minute you start it, coming out of high school or college, you are given basically four to five weeks of paid vacation every year. You know why? Because that's considered part of work-life balance. You're given a health insurance that covers you from the day you're born to the day you die. Doesn't matter who you're working for or whether you even have a job or not. That's your right. You get paid maternity leave. You get paid paternity leave. You get paid holiday sick leave. I mean, you get all kinds of benefits that transform your life. And everybody gets them, and they've been that way for decades. Here in the United States, we don't have a law mandating maternity and paternity leave paid at all. It's the luck of the draw. Does your employer provide it? And if he or she does, will they tomorrow or next year? You don't know. There's no law that governs it. It's up to the desires and profitability of your employer. I mean, this is a way of running an economy that's very good for the employer, but a disaster for the rest of us. And what you're seeing is the beginning of a labor movement reacting against what has been imposed on it, unwilling to continue to accept blow by blow, diminution after diminution of their standards of living and of life. And I would say to the American people, watch out. A labor movement that is reviving, if it can build again alliances with the other social movements that are demanding change, has the power to change our country in fundamental ways. And if you doubt it, just take a look at the 1930s when we had a good alliance between the labor movement and other social movements, and it changed the United States in the most fundamental ways. Yeah, such important points. On that work-life balance point, you know, at the Nabisco factories that went on strike earlier this year, it was common for workers to be forced into overtime work, 12 to 16 hour shifts, six to seven days a week. I mean, that's what you would work if you were, you know, I don't know, in a steel mill in the 1890s, six right. to seven days a week, 12 to 16 hours a day. I mean, unbelievable. One other dimension of this I wanted to ask you about is the development of new technology and how that affects labor, the labor movement, the labor movement's ability to fight. Because one of the things commonly cited by IATSE workers, Hollywood workers, is the emergence of streaming services of Netflix, Hulu, Apple, Amazon, essentially having taken over a big chunk of the entertainment industry their business models call for faster turnaround, more rapid production, you know, speeding up the line, so to speak. And then that redefines the standards, the conditions that workers have to endure for the worst, dramatically for the worst in this case. That's also something that's a common refrain in the history of the labor movement, right, in terms of the development of new technologies, new firms. Absolutely. You know, the capitalist system works its wonders, and I hope 
people understand the sarcasm I intend here, works its wonders all the time. It makes use of technology. It makes use of immigration, which I think is also part of this story, to make more profit. There's no requirement of that. Let me start with the immigration, then I'll talk about the technology. For quite a while, it was profitable to bring large numbers, particularly of Central Americans and Mexicans in particular, into the United States, preferably without documentation, because then employers could basically make them work any number of hours you want, pay them as little or as irregularly as you can get away with, because you knew that the undocumented immigrant would have to take it because he or she would be afraid to go to the authorities and complain, even when their rights were violated, because they were undocumented and they risked losing their status in the United States where they had come to escape violence or poverty and so on. So we did that. Then there was a mass reaction particularly fomented by right-wing politicians playing on the upset of the local American folks who didn't have jobs, who didn't have decent incomes, by turning them against the immigrants. And so we now have three presidents, Obama, Trump, and Biden, expelling people from Central America at an enormous rate. Fine, say the capitalists, if we can't make profit by bringing the low-paid worker here, we'll go to where they are. You will notice that in both the Nabisco strike and the Kellogg strike, one of the key issues was the moving by the employer of production out of the United States to Mexico. They'll make your Rice Krispies and your cornflakes in Mexico and ship them here because they can pay Mexican workers so much less teaching us again that capitalism will make profit by bringing immigrants in when that's doable. And if that becomes politically difficult, no problem. They'll move production there. Either way, Americans see their wages pressed down, their job conditions deteriorate in the interests of profit. And that's the driver of this. Now, technology. A sane, humane society would say, if you're going to introduce a technology that, say, improves how we produce things, you also have as part of introducing that technology, not only to use it in a way that helps the profits of a minority, but also helps the economic conditions of the majority. So, for example, if you have a machine that makes production twice as effective as before, here's what we know a capitalist will do. Oh, goody, says the capitalist. I'm going to buy the machine, and then I'm going to say to half my workers, you're fired. I don't need you anymore, because the other half that I still will hire, they can make as much as it was made before because of this wonderful new machine. And I will keep having the same output because I got half the workers with machines that are twice as effective as before. I can sell as much, I can make as much money, but I'm going to pocket the wages I would have paid to those half of my workers that I fired. Oh, goody, I'm going to make money. And nobody pays attention to what happens to those 50% of the workers that got fired to their husbands, their wives, their children, whose lives are upended by all of this. And none of this is necessary. Let me explain really briefly. 
The alternative that the capitalist could have chosen, never does, but could have, is to say, oh, good, if I have a machine that's twice as effective as what I used to have, here's what I can do. I can keep all my workers working. I can pay them exactly what I paid them before. But here's what I'll do. I'll cut the workday in half from eight hours to four hours because now my workers, same number, working half time with a machine that's twice as effective can produce as much as I produced before and deliver the same output to the market. If I do that, then the technology has been useful to the majority of the people by cutting their labor time in half. I've given them an enormous leisure. The point is the machine can be used either way, for the profits or for the worker. And in our capitalist system, it's always used for the one and virtually never for the other. We tell the other, you're fired, go look for another job. Maybe some capitalist somewhere will find something profitable to do for you. You better hope so. Otherwise, you could go on welfare and we know where that leads. So it's never the technology. It's never the issue of the immigration. It's an issue of whether you allow a system to continue to function, to privilege and prioritize a small minority, the employer class, at the expense of a large majority, which is the employee class. And just in our last couple minutes here, what do you see the future holding for the labor movement in the United States right now? On the one hand, as you said, labor union membership is at a historic low point, but public support for unions, the labor movement is definitely on the rise. We've seen all these hopeful signs of activity. What might we see coming up? My suspicion from American history is this. We're going to be seeing one or another or maybe a small group of leaders of existing labor unions begin to see the potential, see the movement, and see in that an opportunity to rebuild their unions. Look, what motivated the CIO in the 1930s was an old union, the mine workers, led by a charismatic leader, John L. Lewis, who mobilized millions of workers to form new unions, to join and thereby activate old unions. So it was a part of the union movement, the labor movement, in this case, the miners, who mobilized the great CIO wave of, of organizing. And my guess is we're going to see two or three courageous union leaders, this time perhaps from service sector, which has become so much more important in our economy, and they're going to begin to step into leadership roles and galvanize, mobilize, and inspire the mass of people who now see a declining economic system pushing them, as it did in the 1930s, to join and build a labor movement as an act of self-protection. That's all the time we have for today. That was the voice of Richard Wolff. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. 
can check out his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.